Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This time on Vet Story. I just, I just think the combat experience is so humbling because things can happen at random. Uh, your survivability doesn't really have a lot to do with your skill. Your survivability can be just dumb luck. And a lot of brave, tough, far more skilled warriors, you know, didn't come home. And uh, I, I just feel very fortunate just to be alive. I feel very fortunate to have served with men from 2-2 Infantry in the 1st Infantry Division. But everyone who kicks down a door is prepared to face a guy with a gun. They were willing to do it, and uh, God bless them for it. And I jump out my uh, my bag, and this drill sergeant finds a hair dryer, and is like, "Who the hell brought a hair dryer to basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia?" And I denied it. If you had to put a music soundtrack to this, what music were you guys listening to? You know, I, it, it's it's so crazy that you bring this up because this is one of the the untold stories of that firefight. All right, I've had the pleasure of interviewing a lot of veterans with some incredible stories, but this goes down as an absolute first, and it's a distinct honor for me because our guest right now is not only an author, not only a reporter and a broadcaster, and not only a veteran of the U.S. Army, he's also been bestowed one of the highest honors the nation can give a soldier, the Medal of Honor. And I'm talking about U.S. Army Staff Sergeant David Bellavia. David, great to meet you, bud. Hey, nice to meet you, and thank you for your service. Yeah, man. You know, I was uh, the king of the third class on my ship, and you were one hell of an ass-kicking staff sergeant. And uh, I, I know the story's been told a dozen different ways, but uh, as I first saw, you know, we both work at a radio company, and I saw that, uh, you know, while you're out of Buffalo, New York, on WBEN, uh, it actually came across my email that, like, hey, did you know... That David Bellavia works with your company. And I was like, what? He's one of my brothers and sisters doing radio up in New York? I had no idea. And then, then of course, the world knows your name now because it's, you know, you made the news and President Trump bestowed the Medal of Honor on you. Uh, I have to ask, just right out of the gate, you do all these interviews and people always ask you kind of like the same thing. What's it like? And yada, yada. Is there something a reporter has never asked you or is there something that you've always wanted people to know about the Medal of Honor experience? Well, I just want to correct you in saying we don't just work for a radio company. We work for the greatest radio company in all the land in Entercom. <laughs> so there's my little corporate plug right there. Right on, brother. Right on. One team, one fight. Yeah, that's right. No, you know, I, I, I don't know if there is a question I haven't been asked at this point. Um, you know, I, I think th- this is something that, you know, you can, can uh, also uh, 
One of the, the things that, that I see a lot of is when, you know, vets come home and they're getting ready to get back into the world. It, it's, it's, Vietnam is a totally different experience. And, you know, our brave warriors came home from Vietnam and it was that the society had shamefully turned against their service. And, and, and it's so beautiful that the Vietnam generation really protected us from that. But, you know, it's so, it's so fascinating to see how veterans matriculate back to normalcy. You know, some people don't want to wear it on their sleeve. Some people be rather judged as a professional or an individual and then find out, you know, third, second conversation that they served. Uh, other people are just, that's the first thing out of their mouth. This is who I am. This is what I did. Um, I, just, I just think the combat experience is so humbling because things can happen at random. Uh, your survivability doesn't really have a lot to do with your skill. Your survivability can be just dumb luck. And a lot of brave, tough, far more skilled warriors, you know, didn't come home. And uh, I, I just feel very fortunate just to be alive. I feel very fortunate to have served with men from 2-2 Infantry in the 1st Infantry Division. And, uh, you know, it's just a, a really, combat's just a really odd and different experience. Well said, and I can only imagine how awkward it is, yeah, because it's not something you sign up for, you you don't sign up and get an MOS assigned to you that said, you're going to be one of the brave guys, you're all brave. Well, you're- that's the thing, it's like, you know, we, we, we love to talk about what happens when you kick down a door and there's a bad guy with a gun, but everyone who kicks down a door is prepared to face a guy with a gun. I mean, we're not just kicking down doors because we know they're empty houses, right? Right, right, yeah. So, so everyone who stacks on a wall, everyone who goes through a door, is going there with the intent to take the enemy out at, with fire. So, you know, you're, because you found someone in a house doesn't mean you're any more brave or less brave than the millions of Americans who have done this and didn't find someone on the other side of the door. They were willing to do it, and uh, God bless them for it. Very humble. Would expect nothing less of you, David. Let me ask you, going back a ways, what kind of guy was David before boot camp? Because, like, you joined in, what, 99, and I was basically just getting out. So when you were joining, it was still pre-9-11, and the world was all, like, AOL chat rooms and Green Day, and, I mean, I remember some shots of Jägermeister thrown in there. Um, why did you feel compelled to join in 99? You know, it was, it was strange. I had had uh, a couple of, you know, life events that came up and, yeah, there was the war going on. Kosovo was the big deployment. Um, it was more just becoming evolved and, you know, sort of toughening up, growing up. Um, I remember, you know, funny story. I heard that basic training for infantry was like 16 weeks, and I just had no idea what I was getting myself into. Uh, I, I didn't know there were multiple haircuts given a basic training. So I brought a hair dryer to basic training because I thought, you know, 16 weeks, my hair grows back, and I want to be prepared for when my hair grows back. And I dump out my, uh, my bag, and this drill sergeant finds a hair dryer and is like, who the hell brought a hair dryer to basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia? And I denied it. I was like, not me. My whole platoon got smoked, and I really didn't know what I was doing, but I learned quickly, and... and uh, I just, I fell in love with the purpose-driven life of the military. I had value every single day. I felt that I was appreciated. 
uh, that, that, you know, when you go to bed as, uh, you know, a member of the Navy, the Army, the Marine Corps, you're exhausted at the end of the day. You know they, they've gotten everything out of you, and, and that purpose-driven life was really something that uh, I learned to love. Amen. The battle in the citation, I've always wondered this, did it have a name, or was it just another fun day in Fallujah for you guys? Well, the, the, so what happened, our, our unit was a mechanized infantry unit. So you've got guys that just walk around on their, on their feet and, you know, have weapons, and we meet the enemy in the field. And then you've got airborne guys that jump out of planes. You've got guys that come out of Humvees. We have the Bradley fighting vehicle, and essentially that's a, a tank with a, a 25-millimeter uh, high-explosive cannon. And in the back of it, you have Bradley. So you have, like, the best of both worlds. A little bit of armor, but you have infantry. And in an urban fight, the Bradley fighting vehicle is an incredible gift from the Pentagon gods. Uh, We can suppress the enemy. Uh, It's a huge casualty-producing weapon system. But you got the infantry guys in the back, and that not only keeps the Bradleys safe, uh, but it also does a lot of damage. And so in an urban fight, it's a great tool to have. And so because of that, at the time we were in Iraq, we got a lot of what were called inner theater deployments. So we were based in Diyala province in the northeast sector of uh, Iraq by the Iranian border. But yet we were used in places like Najaf and Mosul and eventually Fallujah. And Fallujah was, you know, the Super Bowl of urban fights. Uh, you know, we knew going in we were supporting Marines and that it was going to be a, a 30-day fight and... The population was removed. It's a city about the size of Tampa Bay, Florida, but the only people in Fallujah, 99.9% of them, were Zarqawi's terrorists, and they weren't going out without a fight. We were going to go door-to-door in, a, in a, a very large city, and we were going to pull those guys out one way or another. And uh, on November 10th, you know, we, we had one of probably, you know, 150 firefights. Wow. Wow, that many. So there was, I mean, this was just one of many incidents that... Oh, it was, it was yeah. from, from the very beginning. You know, my, my unit lost our company commander in a house fight. We lost our command sergeant major, Stephen Falkenberg. Our company commander was Sean Sims. Uh, we lost our executive officer, Edward Iwan. He was killed by an RPG. And we lost a scout, uh, James, uh, J.C. Madison, uh, through an RPG. So, you know, we took attrition and we took leadership attrition. And it, it really shows that young people have to step up you always hurt here in the military. They got to know your job three levels up. Well, that's great in garrison, uh, but in combat, that's really stressful for young people. And you know, our leadership really kept us focused. And uh, you know, we just wanted to avenge the guys we lost, and we wanted to, you know, take the the heart out of the out of the insurgency. And it goes without saying that uh, your work has done amazing things. I mean, for all the blood that was shed, for all the battles that were fought, uh, you know, the world is a better place for everything that has gone on and for everything that you did uh, in service to our great country. If I could, I've read so much about these interviews, and I don't want to repeat a lot of the things that you've had to share. Um, I'll take a quick second and read from a writer who I really respect, a combat veteran himself, uh, James Laporta did an incredible write-up on you in Newsweek, and I'll read a little bit from there. The smells, sights, and sounds of Iraq came trudging back. Fallujah, known as the City of a Hundred Mosques, located in Al-Anbar province west of Baghdad, had become a stronghold for Iraqi Sunni insurgents and the most dangerous city in Iraq by early 2004. 
In the early morning hours of November 10th, the men of 3rd Platoon Alpha Company of the U.S. Army's 2nd Battalion, 2nd Infantry Regiment were ordered to clear a street block of 12 buildings where six or more militants had taken shelter. Bellavia was a squad leader in the platoon. Michael Ware, a war correspondent for Time Magazine, was embedded with Bellavia's unit and wrote at the time that the previous day the soldiers had been running from firefight to firefight for 48 hours straight with no sleep, fueled only by the modest pickings from their ration packs. The platoon cleared nine buildings without encountering the enemy. But at the next compound, the men who had entered the front hallway were ambushed as two enemy combatants opened fire with machine guns under a stairwell. Moments later, bullets rained down from a window. The rounds hit the walls and floorboards in the small corridor and forced the soldiers to take refuge in a bedroom. With the volley of gunfire from two different positions, the soldiers were trapped. Bellavia traded his rifle with one of the soldiers who was carrying an M249 squad automatic weapon, or the saw gun, and entered the doorway of the room where his soldiers were taking cover. As bullets snapped past, Bellavia opened fire with his machine gun, allowing the soldiers to move out of the house and into the street. Undeterred by thoughts that life could end at any moment, Bellavia re-entered the building with his fellow soldiers and faced down four enemy combatants carrying machine guns, AK-47s, and one preparing to load an RPG. What followed was a room-to-room -room gun battle inside a three-story building. In an interview with Jeff Shogel from Task and Purpose, Bellavia recalled that the house where he fought insurgents was dark and filled with putrid water that flowed from broken pipes. It seems like a weird thing to ask you about in an audio interview, but as as I just heard, you guys engaged, you got the team out, and then the Bradley fighting vehicle rammed the building, and you went back in, and he marked it by noting in his writing about that sense of smell. Describe that for me, if you could. It's interesting because you're, you know, we, we depend obviously on our, our site, you know, as, as soldiers and, and sailors. Um, but you really can't trust what you see in, our, in a really dark building. Our night vision only works with loom, with, with illumination. Uh, and so outside, on a, with a, without stars in the sky, it's hard to see with night vision. But when you're inside of a building, uh, you really have very little, uh, it's like a cat's eye. It's very difficult to see. Um, and then, you know, you have, uh, your ears are gone instantly because of all the gunfire in a confined space. Uh, when you're shooting hundreds of rounds feet away from someone, your ears get popped out. And most of us really didn't recover our hearing, especially when you go into radio that's magnified, right? So um, oh, yeah. the hearing is, yeah. is gone. Uh, so now you've got basically the only real sense that's functioning is your sense of smell. And, you know, when the Bradley fighting vehicle, it didn't really ram the building. It, it shot a 25-millimeter HE uh, cannon fire. And what, what happened there is that you had uh, a lot of the um, uh, water, uh, the, the plumbing, essentially, in that building had been sitting with water, you know, for six months uh, unattended, and that, that's nasty water. It's got a lot of bacteria in it. It smells like rotted fish, and it's slick. And now, you know, after the, that Bradley barrage, you're just assailed with all of these smells, and you start to realize that, you know, we haven't been without sleep and without showers for days. The enemy hasn't been without sleep or shower for days, 
and you smell body odor. You smell morning breath. You smell that another person has used that house as perhaps a restroom or used that house uh, and has, you know, lived in there and isn't clean, and, and your sense of smell is actually the most heightened of your senses. You smell the people before you actually see them or hear them. That is something that not even Hollywood can give you because when you go see the movies, even as accurate as Spielberg could have captured Saving Private Ryan and Storming the Beaches of Normandy, it lacks that one part. And, and it's so cool to hear you share that. Yeah, sense of smell, overpowering. Um, let's talk about some of the other senses that were involved there. Um, the sense of sound. If you had to put a music soundtrack to this, what music were you guys listening to at any chance you could? If you could hear music on an iPod or somebody at a phone or something like, were you guys listening to music? And if so, what was it? You know, I, it, it's it's so crazy that you bring this up because this is one of the the untold stories of that firefight. We had a psyops team come in to try to rattle those guys out of that neighborhood, and they brought in these enormous—I mean, enormous speakers, like unbelievably loud speakers. And they were playing what they considered to be obnoxious music. And it was the Team America theme from the, uh, <laughs> that movie that came out in 2004, Team America, made by the guys, uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker of South Park. It's like a puppet movie, or it's like kind of, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So they're playing that, and that's literally the soundtrack in which we are exchanging fire in. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's made to be funny. It's made to be a parody. It, it's, it's made to, you know, and and it really wasn't appreciated. It wasn't something we really wanted because it was drowning out a lot of our our communication. And they were playing, you know, there's a song by Dope called Die, MF or Die. And they were playing that song super loud to try to intimidate these guys. But honestly, it was really distracting for us. I mean, that works against us as much as it worked against the enemy. So we actually had a soundtrack as we were, were fighting. Um, and it, it was not a, a helpful. And I, I understand why they use it, because it is distracting. It does make your head, you know, split. But it does not help, uh, you know, to have a soundtrack as you're, you know, going through a life and death moment. Right on. Okay. Well, we will uh, hope that I can share this with uh, with the senior folks at the Pentagon, and we can get. Yeah, uh, we'll we put that in a PowerPoint form. We'll get that straightened out for him. But I just think that's so cool. When you guys were in your downtime, aside from the psyop interaction and the loudspeakers, um, were there certain songs that got you through the times? Like, like, are you a Metallica guy or? Because everyone comes from different backgrounds, and uh, the army is such a melting pot. You you really end up listening to music. That, um, that you're not accustomed to, right? So guys that listen to country western are now introduced to rap, and rap guys are introduced. So I was older. I was, you know, 29, and these kids were 18 and 19. So I would just go out of my way to find the most obnoxious music. And so what I found was there's a, a folk singer that was an anti-war protester during the Vietnam War. His name was Phil Oaks. 
and he played like anti-war um, folk music that was, you know, against, you know, American intervention against the Vietnam War. And we would go on patrols and listen to, like, anti-war music because I just thought it was so ironic and great. I'm dedicated to all the nice folks in NATO. Oh, I marched to the Battle of New Orleans at the end of the early British wars. The young land started growing, the young blood started flowing, but I ain't marching anymore. And also introducing these kids to other types of music. So they would play, uh, you know, Evan Essence. They would play uh, System of a Down. They would play you know, Metallica and all this other stuff. And I would play, like, Sinatra and Phil Oaks and, you know, uh, show tunes just to, like, introduce them to uh, to a different type of, of music. And it was, uh, yeah, that was the soundtrack of our war. That is so cool. And I can hear it now somewhere in a living room while you were on the evening news the other night with President Trump. Somebody was going, yeah, he was great, man, but it's God, his music sucked. I hated that guy's music. <laughs> well, it was a 70-year-old guy listening to, uh, you know, White Christmas while we're being mortared. It's, yeah, not exactly. That's great. Uh, other senses, uh, real quick, in that specific engagement, there was moments where... Uh, you could tell maybe if you'd engaged with an enemy because they were bleeding or you'd find a puddle of blood, but it was a streak through it because they'd gotten away. Um, I've read from some other people that I've interviewed that there were elements of these militias and these insurgents that were hopped up or high on something. Uh, I don't know, meth or heroin or I mean, I guess maybe not heroin, but uh, did you feel as though you were fighting a drug induced enemy that was harder to kill? We found uh, epinephrine and uh, atropine in the, um, uh, th- those are our two auto-injectors that we use in a nuclear biological chemical uh, reaction. The Army gives us that to use if we're ever hit by NBC. Uh, these guys were shooting themselves up with all of those things. Uh, and luckily, we had had that experience in Diala province with a lot of these Iranian militias. In that house in particular, we did find spoons, and we found like a a black tar residue. One of the guys actually had a tourniquet on his arm and a needle in his arm. Um, oh, wow. You know, so, so now you're not feeling pain. I mean, to be honest, uh, I'm against drugs, but if I'm fighting against the American military, uh, you know, I might contemplate getting high, too. I mean, it's not a very smart thing to do against such overwhelming force. Yeah. And whether or not they were using it to chill out or whether or not they were just trying to, they had to be high off their gourd to even, you know, attempt uh, to, to do a stand-up fight with us, that's exactly what they were doing. And, and it does, you know, obviously it's not conducive to, to being clear-headed and making sound decisions, but at the same time, you will have a higher pain th- uh, t- threshold. You will take greater chances, um, but it, it does also work uh, against you. And, uh, you know, it, it's probably a reason why I'm still here today. Mm. And again, just another interesting dynamic with uh, a look through the lens of war. I mean, just winding it down here. Uh, we've covered sights. We've covered sounds. Hell, we even covered smells. Um, <laughs> you know, the one thing I, 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 I wanted to point out that I think I, I really hope Hollywood does you right when they when they film this story. 
but after the firefight's kind of over, and this goes back to like something that's shared from the military probably since the beginning of our military, since the American Revolution. But after the skirmish, after the firefight's over, you're on a second-story kind of patio, and you're lighting up a smoke, kind of, you know, the smell of victory and some raw sewage there. <laughs> um, somebody jumped out at you? Explain how that happened, because in the articles I've read, I just I, I can't quite picture it. Did somebody jump off the roof at you, or somebody... So, so the second story basically had a patio that extended out of a bedroom, uh, and there was, I, I, unbeknownst to me at the time, there was a back staircase that went up to the third story. You know, in that section of Iraq, all over Iraq, uh, there's very little air conditioning. So in the summer hot months, a lot of families sleep on their rooftops. Uh, they're more than just living rooms. They have meals out there. They sleep out there. Hmm. Um, and, you know... It's one thing if you know the layout of a house, you know where all the hiding spots could be. Um, one of the things I was worried about, because I no longer had a helmet, my vest was open, um, I, didn't, I knew my guys were coming in the house, and I did not want to be without the things that American soldiers have on them because it's so reflexive, and you shoot at moving anything, a silhouette, you're going to engage it. I didn't want to get shot by my own guys. Uh, the other thing is, you know, my stress level was pretty high, and I, I knew that there was conversations going on between multiple people in the house. I just didn't know where they were. I didn't know if they were in an adjacent home or if they jumped from roof to roof, if they were still in that house, if they just ran away. Uh, so I tried to find an area that would protect me from any friendly or hostile fire, and I was just super stressed out, and I was a smoker at the time, and I decided to you know, tactically light up a, a quick smoke. And I, I just, the guy was above me on a third story, and he jumped down to the patio, and it was obvious that he landed and injured himself severely because of just his reaction to it. Um, but it was, you know, really lucky for me because he dropped his weapon. It was closer to me than it was to him, and I was able to engage him. And uh, as he tried to kind of climb away off the balcony, he fell, uh, you know, into a palm grove that, you know, we assume he's mortally wounded at that point. Mm. We never recovered him. We recovered the other guys. Um, but uh, it was a pretty crazy ending. Amen. Wow. Talk about the dangers of smoking, huh? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> just say no to cigarettes. Just, Absolutely. Just say no. Right on, man. All right, as we wind it down, I know that you've gone into journalism afterwards, and in fact, you returned to Ramadi and Fallujah in 06 and 08. Uh, one, can I ask why? <laughs> I mean, you have served your country so honorably, so nobly, to go back and cover it, you know, as a reporter, while I would have loved to do that. I would have dreamed of going on a deployment with combat camera to a combat zone, you know, when I was in. Um, You'd already had a taste. You'd already earned your stripes. You didn't need to go do that anymore. What on earth motivated you to want to be a journalist? You know, I mean, the first thing was uh, there weren't a lot of people at that time doing it. Uh, right after 2005, 2006, a lot of the national uh, media uh, companies really took their, their, um, their bureau chiefs out of Iraq. Uh, it was dangerous. Uh, people were getting hurt. A lot of journalists were getting killed. And so there, there were open opportunities that there weren't before. The second thing was I really kind of wanted to find purpose in what we were doing. I wanted to, 
I wanted to walk where my friends died, and I wanted to see an Iraqi population or someone, you know, I, I wanted to see what this was worth and what this meant to them. Uh, maybe get a little closure for myself. Uh, but I just imagine, you know, my grandfather in, in the Normandy campaign or at the Battle of the Bulge, if he could have gone back to the battlefield two years after his fight, what that would do. It's just an incredible opportunity to become part of some pretty high-profile fights and then have a chance to revisit that battlefield. Most people never get a chance to go back to where they served unless they do it in uniform. Um, you know, and the pay wasn't all that great, uh, but it was it was an opportunity that I really wanted to take advantage of. I wanted to see it for myself. I wanted to touch the walls that I knew we we gouged out with our own rounds. I wanted to see, you know, where my, my friends had died and maybe give the families a little bit more perspective of the area that they lost their sons. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just, I did that uh, two times. Amen. For for the guys that never went back and never saw what you saw, were you were you pleased to see that some of the areas had returned to soccer being played in the streets and kids laughing and chai tea being sold? I mean, did it look like it was getting healthier and normal? Well, it was definitely different. I mean, it wasn't as violent as it was before. Uh, the, you know, we, I, I really was one of the first, I think, Western journalists to see the Ambar Awakening as it was happening. Um, but at the same time, I, I wasn't mature enough to really understand. I was expecting monuments. I was expecting reverence. Um, but, you know, I think about, I was stationed in Germany, and I, I'd walk in German streets where American soldiers died, and I didn't lay flowers down. I didn't genuflect. Uh, the ultimate compliment uh, post-war is that you move on with your life. Uh, you know, we fight for normalcy. We fight so there isn't violence. Um, so I was actually offended that I didn't see more, you know, reverence to where so much was lost. And now I look back at it now as a, you know, guy at middle age, and I think, well, what was I expecting? I mean, you know, two years after a fight, they're not going to erect a, a monument. They're not going to, you know, put little landmarkers everywhere. Um, so, yeah, I mean, at the time I was a little bit offended and, it really didn't, it struck me the wrong way. Today I look back and realize, you know, uh, that's, you know, that's, that's what I should have expected all along. And so much of that is the growth of us maturing and, you know, the blessing that is, uh, dare I say, middle age, because we're both about the same age. I don't want to think about this being the middle, but uh, it certainly afforded us some wisdom. Um, as we wrap this up, I, I, I know that this day will always, or rather, this specific firefight here will always be remembered because it happened on your birthday. Um, as that's an annual anniversary that you can't get away from, do the negative memories of war haunt you every year on your birthday, or what do you do to keep your headspace right? You know, I, here's the thing: I there's we do a we did a great disservice to veterans when we called post traumatic stress a disorder. Okay, I, I think that you know if a, if a kid gets shot four times. You don't say he has multiple gunshot wound syndrome. You know, he, the kid got shot. Uh, people that go through traumatic events have post-traumatic stress. And it's not just combat vets, car accident, uh, people that are, you know, victims of abuse. There's two ways you can look at a bad experience in your life. You can realize that this is a part of what happened, and there's nothing you can do to change it, but you can become empowered by it 
and you could be a force of good that, that goes out there and takes this experience and becomes better by it, or you can just be victimized by it. And there were years that I was victimized by it, and there were years that I was super disconnected, and I didn't want to live my life because you feel the guilt of surviving. You feel that every holiday, you know, I'm watching my kids unwrap presents, and I'm thinking, you know, there's a Gold Star family out there that is in a, in a pool of tears right now because they don't have that loved one home. Uh, or you could take that time to remind that Gold Star family on that holiday that they're loved and that they're appreciated and that you're thinking of their fallen son. Um, you could take that combat experience and say, look, you know, I was older. I'm in a different spot in my life. Maybe there's a young guy who is struggling. Maybe I can to, to help with what I went through when I was going through their, their, their phase right now. Um, there's no right, there's no wrong, but I just refuse to be victimized by something that I really had no control over. I, I refuse to, to have veterans looked at as victims or, you know, objects of pity. Uh, in the Army, we were trained to be empowered, we were trained to be professionals, and we were trained to stay with each other. We leave no one behind on the battlefield. Well, guess what? When we come home, we shouldn't leave anyone behind either. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I cover this from so many different angles and I speak to veterans each week and it's something that I I don't know how to talk about enough and I need to frame it properly but with my own limited experience it's tough for me to be uh, the really powerful messenger so I try to ask it as often as possible how to stay on the right side of you know our brain space and it sounds like you really got that one nailed um, again can't thank you enough for sharing that with us. Now, you've got a radio show yourself up in Buffalo, New York on WBEN, Entercom Radio. And uh, one, I want a guest slot, okay? I want to come sit in the guest chair. But two, I want to know more about your show. You know, we do everything from politics to pop culture to, you know, just really uh, deep, personal, controversial conversations about cataclone in New York. It's uh, <laughs> it, We run the full That's gambit good. of, you know... Uh, pop culture, talk about Netflix to uh, debating, uh, you know, Asian trade. <laughs> nice. And it's pretty much what we talked about on the fobs or on the ships. I mean, I know. It's, it's the, listen, there is no greater transition to what you and I do than our experience in the military. We, we did a radio show every day for the time that we were in. We just didn't have any callers. Right. Right. And, the, right? and I mean, it's all we do. What you're doing right now is what you would have been doing at the smoke pit or out the chow hall. Uh, and you, you know, you, you've got guys from all different backgrounds and all different ways of life. Uh, you know, the one thing I would encourage many, as many people to do as possible is to serve their country in whatever capacity they can. But in the military, you are going to, all of the problems we have in this world, there's so many reasons to be divided and polarized. Nobody cares in the military. You, just, you can't function with hate in your heart. You can't function by looking at someone who's different than you. We embrace difference in the military, and we come up with ways to work together to solve problems. Maybe more civilians need to remember that. 
I, I think the world of good we would do if there were more of us infused in the leadership of the country and, in fact, even civic leadership. I mean, on the on the local city level, if more guys just really had town hall conversations the way we did among just the fellas sitting around the smoke pit, I mean, the sexually explicit, uh, hormonally charged conversations that literally solved all the freaking problems of the world. I, I, I loved every minute of it. and uh, loved well, talking- I, I don't know what was going on in the Navy, man, but in the... <laughs> <laughs> I knew- See, no. It was a little different than that, but all right, I'm with you. <laughs> all right, I walked into that one. Service rivalry, ball busting, I'm never going to get away from that shit. Let me tell you, me tell you the honest God truth. The only people that care about Army, Navy go to Annapolis and West Point. <laughs> but- the truth is we are one team. Uh, I am so proud of every veteran of every generation. Uh, all that stuff, that's all great in garrison, but when the bullets are flying, man, your Navy corpsmen, airmen and women, the Coast Guard, yeah. the, the Marine Corps, uh, I will go through hell with a bucket of gasoline for those guys. Uh, you saved our lives. We tried to help you out, and uh, that flag on our shoulders will draw us together. Amen, brother. Amen. Well, I, you know what? You'd fit in good in the Navy, though, because you, you brought your blow dryer to boot camp, though, buddy. Don't think I'm ever going to let that one go. That's great. Are you, hey, guilty as charged. <laughs> guilty as charged. Oh, man. I could talk all day. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you, David Bellavia. Um, Let's get some beers together, man. Let's have corporate come up with a way that we can either have you down to D.C. again for a little uh, shindig and, uh, you know, we can break out some beers. We can have some food and bring the public. And uh, then, you know, this fall, I want to come up and have some of those wings. I will send this uh, voicemail to David Fields uh, as soon as I get off the phone with you. (laughs) Right on. David, pleasure to meet you. You were a friend at ConnectingVets.com. We look forward to having you back. Hey, thank you for what you're doing. It's very important. And uh, God bless, man. Take care, bro.